Hey guys, thanks for checking out this episode. This one we're going to kind of center around the topic of how to survive in the ER as a new APP, whether it's a nurse practitioner or a new PA. I think that the information here is going to be super practical for, you know, even if a field paramedic, I mean, how we practice in the ER is, is really relevant to you guys and how you approach patients as well. So I think it's going to be really good information for you. Later in the episode, we're going to bring in Dr. Adam Barito, who is uh, gracious enough to come in and uh, give me some awesome information from his perspective as an ER physician and former paramedic. Um, he gives some great tips uh, to new APPs. So watch, listen to the whole episode. He's got some great advice throughout and I think it'll be really valuable for you. So um, definitely stay for the whole episode to check it out. I've got a couple tips I want to share with you guys just from the get-go before we bring in Dr. Barito. The first thing that I did the other day is I shadowed our general surgery APPs around for half a day. I wanted to kind of get a feel for their workflow and how we can help them when we consult general surgery from the ER, especially as new APPs. It's, consulting with a specialist is a difficult thing as a new grad when you're kind of getting your bearings for different diagnoses and trying to figure out what exactly warrants a, a specialist consultation and especially what warrants a specialist uh, like a general surgeon to see a patient. And so I followed him around for half a day and just took down some quick notes to kind of what we can do to help them out and help their workflow um, and make their lives a little bit easier. One thing I didn't realize is that each new consult that we give the general surgery team, and obviously this is going to vary from facility to facility. You know, we're a a big level one trauma center, so we have a very big trauma service. Um, but each new consult takes them 30 to 45 minutes total. You know, each patient we see in the ER is really not taking that much time. Some of them will if they're, you know, a little bit more um, sick and if they require a lot of consultations, they will. But most of our patients don't take 30 to 45 minutes. But they're going through the patient's chart, they're reviewing all the imaging, they're reviewing the workup, they're looking at past surgeries. They're going to the patient's bedside and talking to the patient about different surgical options and non-operative treatments. They're doing a very thorough physical exam to make sure that the exam actually fits the diagnosis that we're thinking of. And at the end of all that, they're still consulting with the general surgeon and the general surgeon's coming to the bedside. So this takes them between 30 and 45 minutes. So when we consult them, just understanding that this is a, a big commitment for them time-wise, will kind of help us understand like that's why it takes them a little while to get to patients sometimes um, and why it takes them a little bit to give us a plan because they're doing all this prep work um, and stuff up front that just takes them a little bit of time. The other thing that we thought of that would be really helpful is to have a specific surgical question when you consult general surgery. And Adam and I are going to talk about this later, but it's important to know what you're asking the consultant. What question do you actually have for them? And sometimes, you know, depending on the patient's workup, an abnormal CT finding doesn't necessarily warrant intervention from a general surgeon. So if you're un uncertain, make sure you're asking your physician to look at the scan and say, hey, is this something that we even need to talk with surgery about? Is this something that's totally non-emergent that can be followed up outpatient? Um, just to avoid asking them questions that they really can't answer or don't need to answer. And if the patient's workup's totally negative, they have totally normal labs, a totally normal imaging finding, a lot of times there's not really anything that surgery can help you with unless there's something else you're concerned about um, that wasn't found on the imaging. So if they have a totally negative workup and you're just not sure what to do with the patient, a lot of times that's not really something that the surgery team is going to be able to help with. Um, also avoiding curbside consults. Um, they, they really like to either be a full consult or nothing at all because it, it does increase their liability if they're giving you 
advice on a patient with only a partial picture. So if you're going to consult them, make sure they have the whole story, make sure they have time to look at, look at the patient's chart, dig into the patient's history, and just do a full consultation rather than just picking their brain on something on the fly because they really, without all the information, they can't give you accurate um, advice. Um, and the last tip that he thought of was just review your own imaging. And this is really hard as a new APP. When you're super busy, it's easy just to wait for the radiologist to read the scan and tell you what it says. It's, it's a better habit to get into to go through all of your imaging, even if it's after the fact and you see that they have a remarkable finding on the scan, scroll through the scan yourself and see what the radiologist is talking about because the more you can see these different findings and the more you can see normal, the more you're going to be able to roll through a CT scan or an x-ray or whatever and be able to find these things for yourself. And they put a lot more emphasis on actually looking at your imaging and I think that's something we can learn from in the ER um, because a lot of times, you know, when we're, we get behind and we're busy, we don't look at the imaging ourselves and they can read the radiologist's report you know, but they want to know what you see on the CT scan. So that's a really good habit to get into as well. And it's a huge learning opportunity, especially as a new APP, to be able to look at your imaging and be able to make diagnosis before the read even comes up. It does save some time. This year is actually my year to renew all my CME. So I'm actually renewing my paramedic this year. I'm renewing my uh, PA stuff this year. So I have to get 100 CMEs. And I've been going through some different classes. And one of the CME classes I'm taking talks a lot about you know, these high liability emergency medicine cases and how do you limit your liability? How do you catch things and not miss things? And a lot of it centers around the patient's experience. If the patient feels cared for, they're less likely to file a complaint about you. And, you know, studies show that physicians and APPs that get a lot of complaints actually get uh, pulled into court more often and they get, they get more suits against them. Um, so it's a good habit to actually make your patient feel cared for um, Doing good evidence-based medicine is super important, and that's kind of the forefront of our mind. But actually giving the patient a good experience in the ER is super important for them as well. And there's a lot of benefits to doing that just because it does decrease the chances of complaints against you. It makes the patient feel cared for. And that's what we're really after is to actually take care of the patient. So some of their tips are actually touch your patient when you examine them. You know, when you're listening to your lung sounds, you're touching the patient, you're feeling their abdomen, and that makes the patient feel like they're actually being cared for. Even if that doesn't give you a lot of valuable information for your workup, it's important to actually examine the patient. Another tip they say is to apologize for the wait, but it's not great verbiage to say, I'm really sorry for the long wait today. It's better to kind of put the focus on the patient and say, thank you for your patience. I know you've waited a really long time. Um, you know, thank you for waiting. You know, I'm here now you know, what can I help you with today? Um, and that kind of thing. And at least acknowledge the fact that they've been waiting for a little while. Um, they recommend knocking on the door when you enter. Don't just barge in the room and pull aside the curtain and just, you know, introduce yourself as the, the physician or the APP that's coming in. Give them a little bit of privacy and, and just knock on the door. It's very simple. It takes half a second and it makes the patient actually feel a little bit more respected as well. Make sure you're overestimating wait times. You know, we all have a tendency to try to undersell how long of a wait it's going to be, but it's actually better to kind of overestimate these wait times because it gives the patient the proper expectation. And then if you, you know, beat that estimated wait time, they actually feel like they got faster care than they were expecting. I've addressed this one before in previous videos, but it's really important to actually address the patient's pain. We're always busy thinking about the workup, thinking about the differentials, that sometimes we forget to actually give the patient some pain medication 
for their complaint. And that's really important to the patient. So make sure you offer some kind of medication. It doesn't have to be narcotic. You can offer them Tylenol or ibuprofen, but make sure you're actually addressing the complaint that they're here for, the, the painful complaint that they're here for. And lastly, they talked a lot about shared decision-making and a lot of people use this incorrectly. Shared decision-making is helping the patient educating the patient to decide between two equal options. It's not a patient's leaving AMA. That's not shared decision making. You're not, you don't want to share in a decision that's bad for the patient, like leaving against medical advice. So that's not shared decision making. You don't want to share in a bad decision. You're helping the patient decide between two equal options and they're both, in your mind, they're both reasonable. You're educating the patient on both options and they're deciding with you which course to follow. Um, but only if they're equal decisions, not if one's a poor decision. A couple of other tips I have for new APPs in the ER. You know, when you're trying to be efficient and you're dealing with high volume, the order you should try to tackle your patients in is deal with the dispositions first. So if a patient can be admitted or discharged, do that task first and then see the new patients. Um, unless the new patient needs orders put in on them or it's an ambulance, then you can prioritize that a little bit higher so that you can get things moving on that patient and put in orders. And always do your orders before you're charting. Um, and if you kind of follow those, those rough orders of different tasks, you'll be a little bit more efficient. I also really recommend using the different tools that we have at our disposal. If you have MD Calc, there's tons of tools there, and it's really helpful to document these. Um, the PER criteria, the heart score, I mean, there's tons of these. So get familiar with them, use them in your charting. It really helps from a medical legal perspective, um, and it helps you make decisions and, and not overorder things in some circumstances. Another thing they brought up that I thought was a really good point is don't discharge patients with abnormal vital signs. If you have a patient that's tachycardic, hypotensive, or tachypnic, don't discharge that patient unless you have a good rationale for why their vital signs are abnormal. And they cited a lot of statistics that, you know, a patient that is discharged when they're tachycardic or discharged when they're mildly hypotensive, those patients are much more likely to have a bad outcome. Um, and that's something I never, I never really realized before is that, you know, statistically those patients probably have something going on that you might be missing if you're discharging them. So explain why they have abnormal vital signs when you're discharging them so that at least it's addressed um, or help correct their vital signs so that they're normal at discharge. Or maybe you need to dig into that patient's history a little bit more and order some more workup or imaging before discharging them. All right, guys, that's it for the tips I have for you guys. Um, here in a second, we're going to bring in Dr. Adam Barito, and he's going to give us uh, some great information for new ERPAs. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode. If you're listening, thanks for listening. If you're checking it out on the website or on YouTube, thanks for checking it out. And if you're watching, that means you got to stare at our ugly mugs. But those of you listening, fortunately, only have to hear the audio. So that's kind of the benefit there. Um, just the usual disclaimer, this stuff's just our opinions only. It doesn't reflect anyone we work for, have worked for, affiliated with. It's not medical advice, so take, don't take it that way. Um, it's just our opinions only. Um, I was able to sucker an actual physician, an ER physician, into coming on the show today. Um, this is Dr. Adam Barito. Yes, sir. Um, and so I'll let him kind of introduce himself and kind of explain his background experience, and we'll kind sure. of talk about some stuff. The main topic today is how to survive in the ER as a new ER APP. Um, and we'll kind of talk about that theme primarily today and I'll let Adam kind of introduce himself. All right. Um, <clears throat> I appreciate the invite. This is an awesome opportunity. I, uh, I started out as a paramedic probably, 
I guess that's a little over 20 years ago in Tampa, Florida, and um, I joined the fire department because I wanted to work outside and work 24 on, 48 off, and I fell in love with the medical side, decided I wanted to do something with it. So after a few years, I built up the gumption to, to go to college and let the license for paramedic go, and thought for a long time about becoming an APP or a PA or an NP. Um, first, I thought I'd be a nurse, and then I thought I'd be maybe a PA to have some of that mobility and learn different skills and be able to travel and take it where I wanted to. Sure. Um, it was only a couple of buddies of mine that eventually <laughs> convinced me essentially to go to med school. I wouldn't change that decision in retrospect, um, but uh, I, I put a lot of time into thinking about doing exactly what you do. So I'm a big fan of um, teaching and training residents, med students, um, NPs, PAs. Uh, part of my job is administration right now, um, taking on a lot of med students, residents, and, and tutoring new mid-level providers and whatnot or whatever the, the appropriate title these days is. So. Um, I love everything about this, and the fact that I was invited on here is uh, its a bit of an honor, so I, I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Um, I trained at uh, University of Colorado Medical School here in Denver, and then went to residency at uh, Indianapolis, which is, was the year that I went there, the number one ranked ER program in the country, oh, nice. and then came here partly because it's, it's academic, but it's not right in the hub of Denver. Well, Colorado Springs now feels like Denver, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's a mix of um, the community and the, and the academic side, which I enjoy. Cool. Awesome. Um, kind of introducing the topic. So, you know, those of us that are NPs, PAs that are new in emergency medicine, we, we get how difficult this is, especially as a new grad with no experience in any field of medicine and no residency and, you know, you know kind of a relatively brief program, you know, nurse practitioner, a lot of people get that online. It's pretty brief. PA schools, you know, two to three years, but even that, I mean, you get maybe a couple ER rotations if you're lucky. A lot of people get none, and you decide you want to work in emergency medicine, and it's a very, very steep learning curve. Um, and so you really have to be able to pick this stuff up quickly and learn on the fly and kind of figure out if this is for you or, or not. You know, some people figure out the hard way that it's not the right specialty for them. Um, you know, and then you add to that different scopes of practice, different groups practice different ways. You're working with different physicians on a lot of shifts. Sometimes you're working with no physicians out in the middle of nowhere um, with very little resources. Sometimes you're very resource heavy. Um, you add all that in and it's, you know, it's a pretty difficult job um, that not everyone can handle and um, it's hard to be successful at sometimes. Um, regarding the idea that APPs do kind of work with different physicians, you know, depending on the day, depending on the um, the group or where you're at, you know, what, what advice do you have for new APPs and, and how to tackle working with different physicians with different practice um, habits? So <clears throat> I was wondering what question you were going to start with. I had that on the bottom of my list here. You know, I got to say, I don't know if the structure at every organization is similar to the one that we happen to be in where, where you do. You intermix with so many different docs and personalities and practice styles, even on the same shift as, as you know, changeover occurs and whatnot. Yeah. It, it, that, even from my perspective for all of you guys, it is a bit of a stressor. And I can imagine that that's got to be, there isn't a, a proportion, how do I want to put this? Every single shift when I work with a newer PA or NP, I hear that comment, you know, hey, I just wanted to ask you about X, Y, or Z that I'm going to order, or I'm not sure if you want to do this, or do you want to talk about this patient or see this patient before I go do whatever else? Because they're constantly trying to adapt to the practice pattern, the style of the yeah. doc that just walked in the door, that's got to be a bit of a stressor. Now, there's a benefit to that. You know, in that environment, 
I think the way to keep a positive perspective would simply be to remember that there's always an opportunity, opportunity to see something from a different provider's perspective, to learn something new. You know, the exposure to different practice patterns is a huge positive in an environment like you mentioned, where you've got so much to pick up, you know, in a short period of time to really be efficient and good at this in the ER. Mm -hmm. That's a positive. But I do get the mental strain of having to adapt to the personalities. Now, on that front, um, you know, one of the things that I always tell everybody is to try as hard as possible not to worry about adapting to the doctor's practice pattern as much as building their own. Now, I get that those are two topics that intertwine quite a bit, that you'll develop your practice pattern over time based on the practice patterns you see of the docs you get to work with. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, to just work on the fundamentals, to work on sick versus not sick from an initial patient evaluation standpoint to worry about you know why am i ordering what i'm ordering to build your basic practice style that can be applied to the majority of patients you walk in the door to see rather rapidly and then worry afterwards about how the physician's going to want to tinker with your orders or how they're going to want to approach that patient is probably the way to go if you're you know if you over order a bit in this environment, you're going to interact, give report on that patient so rapidly to a doc that there's going to be time to pull back orders or add orders. Mm -hmm. You're not going to necessarily, at the pace that we move in the ERB, a cog in the wheel. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to survive the shift and make sure that every patient is safe while you get them all seen, which can right. be overwhelming. So I think the idea of, of learning the basics, being efficient with how you start working up a patient, why you're doing what you're doing, and really identifying the patients that make you uncomfortable, that raise your spidey senses, and asking early about those patients ahead of others is more important than worrying, which is probably hard to do, but more important than worrying about how's the physician that I'm working with going to respond to my ideas about how I feel about this patient's level of sickness, you know, how are they going to respond to the orders that I'm about to put into the computer. I think that has to take a bit of a backseat to your own level of efficiency and getting things going. Yeah. Now that can be tricky because just like NPs, PAs, techs, nurses, doctors in particular, you know, I would be willing to say in the ER would probably get this a little less than sub subspecialties, but we all have different attitudes mm -hmm. and it can get a little hairy. You know, people can be on edge or, you know, some people are a little more <laughs> burnt out for lack of a better word and they come off a little bit more aggressive or harsh. And, and that's unfortunate because it makes it harder to do exactly what I just said. Your, your initial approach is more, boy, I'm nervous about getting this just right with this doctor. Mm -hmm. I, I think that mindset has to take a bit of a backseat to the rest of that picture. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, <clears throat> some of the people I've talked to, you know, what the physicians don't want to see is like, oh, I'm ordering this because I thought you wanted it. Right. That's kind of the wrong attitude to have. It's like, well, do you, do you have a reason or something you're yeah. ruling out by ordering this test? Because most people, right. if you have a reason for what you're ordering, mm -hmm. that's a lot better than saying, oh, I just, I thought that's something you would want. You know, right. you know you've right. got to practice, you know, with some logic behind the orders that you're putting in. Yeah. Another thing you said too about getting the physicians involved early when you're like, okay, this might be a little bit beyond my knowledge base. Um, that kind of thing. That's something I've heard a lot, a lot too, is get the physician involved early rather than late, throwing in a bunch of random orders, kind of throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall, not really sure what you're working up. Mm -hmm. um, getting them involved early, I think, is key. And that's a hard thing to do when you're a new grad. You're not really sure where that area is. You're trying to handle stuff yourself. You probably shouldn't be trying to handle yourself. Um, and then you get kind of this confused picture, you know, get the physicians involved early, I think is a huge point. Yeah. I, I've had... Um I can think of one particular scenario, 
someone who made a dramatic change in the last few years that I've had a chance to work with where, you know, the initial approach was I want to, I want to, I want to show that I know sick versus not sick. I want to show that I can see X number of patients rapidly and get things started. And that became the priority to kind of appease the physician cohort versus just building their own flow and getting good at the basics. And, and this individual was actually shocked that she, they got a couple commentaries on initial review that said, I'm a little nervous, uh, you know, about how you look at these patients, how fast you're moving, your level of apparent confidence that doesn't match up with, per se, the knowledge base yet, even though you've got such great potential and, and hustle. And to slow down and take a step back, this individual six months later was one of the strongest, you know, NPs or PAs that we had in the group because they took that to heart and said, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to not worry as much about who I'm working with, but I'm going to worry about the patient. That's always the, the point in ER, right? Yeah. It's the people, it's the patients. So, yeah. Yeah. And that kind of brings me to the, the next question <clears throat> regarding like the biggest mistakes you see in new grad APPs. I've got, you know, kind of a list of things that I see. Um, you know, I think not being teachable and not being humble is a major problem for new APPs because there is such a steep learning curve that you have to be able to take criticism. You have to not take it personal. Yeah. Um, you know, in most positions, however they're giving criticism, it's meant in a good way. It's meant to educate. And, you know, the expectation is not that we know everything that a doctor knows. You know, they don't expect us to have that same knowledge base. And so I think a huge part of that relationship is education. And so a new APP really needs to be humble and teachable. Um, yeah, well, what are your thoughts on that stuff? You know, that, um, that's my number one point, I think, that I bring up to a lot of practitioners that are not just NPs and PAs. I say this still to this day to every medical student going into emergency medicine specifically. This is very important, I think. Paramedics going to NP or PA programs, med students getting ready for residency, residents getting ready for attending hood, and I've said it to numerous young attendings in their first one to three years, and there's actually a lot of data to back this. You know, if you remain in a place where you know this job could humble you at any moment, you know, it's, it's biblical, man. <laughs> humble thyself or you will be humbled because it, it's... It's a field where it's kind of out to get you, you know, and, and those, I, I, I meet these folks very rarely. I have a scenario in the last couple of years that comes to mind, you know, the folks that come in, and I think part of it might even be a bit of a facade, and I get this, where you want to, you don't want to look like you don't know, but I'll tell you right now, you know, as an attending for the last six years or so, you don't know everything. I don't care who you are. The docs don't know everything. The, the human body is, <laughs> we, we will never have all this down. You know, we've all had the scenarios month after month where you didn't see the diagnosis coming until it slapped you right in the face. This job is out to get you a bit. So yeah, the humble part is huge. If you're willing to learn, if you know that this job could take a turn on you any given patient, any time. I know that sounds intimidating and it kind of is, but truthfully, it's the folks who the folks who come in guns blazing and very confident, I feel like when I talk, the answer is always, uh-huh, oh yeah, yeah, uh-huh, right. Then I raise an eyebrow and I get real nervous. You know, where is, where is the limit to your, your knowledge base right now so that we can work from there? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like it's impossible to buy that you truly know it all when I know I don't. Mm -hmm. this is, this is, that's a bit of a problem. So the, the very big walking in confidence makes me nervous. And then the, the humble part, I hate to put it this way, but I think it's true. This is what I tell med students, PAs, NPs, everybody. 
go into this job with a whiff of fear. You know, you don't have to be so intimidated and scared that you're like, I don't know if ER is for me. This is a great specialty. You have an opportunity to meet a lot of people, help a lot of people, see a lot of things, learn like you wouldn't in any other subspecialty. And that's a gift, in my opinion, the lifelong learning ability. Um, you know, just provided by the job, no matter what you do, just showing up. That's how it goes. I, I think um, I think if you always have a, that little bit of fear in you, <laughs> there's no other way to put that, that you don't know what could happen any moment, that's the right answer. Mm -hmm. That is the right answer. And I've heard from many excellent attendings over the years who are long retired say to new attendings, for that first one to three years, for 10,000 patient interactions, all the things that we have numbers and data on, if you're, if you're not nervous about what could happen, you're probably overconfident. And that's a line you need to find. Yeah, that's you know? true. So, and yeah. I think that's kind of the... I, I talk to paramedics a lot about that kind of stuff because the paramedic culture is kind of to be a little overconfident. And I think by nature of the job, you kind of have to have some overconfidence. You're yeah. arriving on a chaotic scene. Everyone's losing their minds. And you're the one who's got to come up with a plan. For better or for worse, you've got to come up with a plan and execute it. And that takes some confidence, maybe yes. even some um, false confidence. Or yeah. you, may, you know, in your mind, you might be a little bit concerned that you're not doing the right thing. But you've got to come up with a plan and stick to it. Yeah. But I think that transition from paramedic to an APP, whether it's an NP or PA, it does kind of humble you. And I think if it doesn't, and you continue to have that kind of false confidence that you know everything, right. um, it will kind of burn you later on. So I think you kind of have to learn that, that quality over time. Yeah, that is from specifically speaking to those who are coming out of the field into this practice, I mean, that's two different worlds. You know, the answer in the field, I, again, I started that way as, as a medic. In case scenario, especially in a larger city where transport times are seven minutes or whatnot, you know, the, the end game is, well, I'll just hit the gas. Mm -hmm. I'll get to definitive care. You are now definitive care. There's no driving to the, the destination to drop the patient off. You're it. Yeah. So to keep that in mind should change that perspective a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.